Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello, and welcome to the second edition of The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. Back in December, I had a really special guest on my podcast, Naked Monday. That was when the show was mostly about writers and the writing process. However, in the interest of being more specific, more targeted, and let's face it, better branded, I launched a new podcast that pretty much says exactly what the show is all about. Thrillers. Thus, The Thriller Zone. Anyhow, that uber special guest has become an even closer friend since then. Furthermore, she's agreed to be a second set of eyes and ears on the next thriller I'm currently working on. One that I believe and hope to be the book. That, for lack of a better term, the one that sets me apart. But more on that another time. That gal is the talented, beautiful, and oh-so-gracious Kimberly K.J. Howe. K.J. is an award-winning author and the creator of the Kidnap and Ransom Thriller series, which includes The Freedom Broker and the book I tore through, Skyjack. K.J. is also the executive director of Thriller Fest, the annual conference of international thriller writers. Now, although this show aired back in December, which you'll recognize by the several references, I wanted to bring this conversation to you and my Thriller Zone audience so that you can hear what a tremendously talented and giving gal she is. So without further ado, Thriller Zone fans, please welcome K.J. Howell. Absolute pleasure to join you, David. Thanks for the invite. Man, I got to tell you something, uh, and I'm going to sound like a geek throughout this entire show, and that's okay because I am a geek. Thriller Fest, and I, without sounding like Mr. Hyperbole, was one of the single best experiences of my life. I can't think of another place that you can go that you can hobnob with your favorite writers and be immersed in this whole miniature university of education. KJ, it doesn't get any better than that. It's just, it was magnificent. Well, that absolutely delights us. We work, you know, all year round. As soon as one Thriller Fest is done, we start planning for the next one. And, you know, we just, we feel like it's a summer camp for writers. And like you said, we specifically don't have a green room or anywhere where the VIPs can hide out because we would like them to be in the hallways and the bookstore and the in corridors chatting with everybody. And quite often, you know, some of the biggest superstars out there are asking you about your books, what you have planned in your writing, how they can help you. And I, I really feel like it's a piece of magic. And I went to the very first Thriller Fest in Phoenix, Arizona, And I think it was 2006 and everyone since has been at the Hyatt in New York. And I remember feeling that magic at the very first one and I started volunteering and then I got more and more involved and and now look at what's happened. And what happened this, this last, uh, this past, this year, it was uh, virtual. Uh, I was talking to um, Jeff Wilson Wilson. and he, yeah. And he said it was Fabulous. Well, we shifted gears very quickly in April when we realized that there was no way we would do an in-person conference given the pandemic. And we learned so much through this process, just how to put on a virtual conference. And I came up one night when I couldn't sleep because I was so worried about what would happen with this concept of mega craft fest. And I said to myself, okay, we're in a situation where we can't be together, but what what is the positive or upside of that situation? And the positive or upside was the fact that we could bring in people from anywhere. 
So bottom line is you could be in Australia, you could be in England, you could be in Iceland, and we could still be part of our effort. And so I thought, what if we paired best-selling authors with each other and had them talk about the craft of writing and have some fun with it? And so we ended up getting an incredible array of authors. I was very lucky to, you know, kind of interview Ken Follett. Um, We had... Yeah, I know. It was it was a moment I will never forget. Um, John Grisham came. I mean, like Brad Thor. I mean, it just the list goes on and on. So you can still actually participate in it if you're interested. It's one of these situations where you can purchase access to all the videos and watch them at your leisure. So you don't need to actually be anywhere at any time. And that's another wonderful aspect of doing a virtual thing is that if you couldn't make it that week, it doesn't stop you from listening to it later. Okay, so the good news is I can I can experience it virtually. The bad news is there was there's nothing like like I'm trying to think of some of the highlights. Matter of fact, just before I got on with you, I, I pulled out my uh, Thriller Fest mm-hmm. catalog. I was reliving my favorite highlights, and one of them was being able to hang out with Harlan Coben, who I'd always seen as this really tall, statuesque guy, which he is. But we look eye to eye, which was very surprising to me. And he's got such a wonderful sense of humor. Oh, and of course, getting to see Meg Gardner. I'm just thinking of all the people I got to meet. And uh, your your pal, who your book uh, Skyjack's dedicated to, David Morrell. Yeah, he's he's a really special person. I mean, Harlan is is absolutely hysterical. And that's one thing I don't think people realize. You know, when they read his book, you know, they're pretty serious, they're thrillers. And sure. then you start chatting with him and you're just like, yeah, definitely. And of course, Meg is one of the nicest people I know. Yeah. Um, I love that lady. And, and, and it's really ironic because when you talk to her, you would never guess she would write something like unsub. No, uh, I'm trying to. And then, yeah, uh, Dark Corners of the Night. It's it was so, so <laughs> wacky because she's so, you know, so pleasant, so charming. I, and then, of course, David Morrell. I mean, yeah. you know, oh. he's the reason I wanted to start writing. And we kind of had this incredible story where, you know, I, I always wanted to be an author after reading Brotherhood of the Rose. Then I, uh, you know, got busy with school, did something practical, got a business degree, you know, started working in computer consulting, sales and management. And I just kept thinking, I still want to write, I really, really want to write books. That's my dream. And so I decided to go back into my master's in creative writing. And guess who came as the keynote speaker that year was David Morrell. Like it's sort of sometimes he's meant to be. And from there, we had a wonderful talk because my thesis was about a female sniper and he was very intrigued. I don't know if you know, but he's also Canadian, as I am. Uh, and and we had this really great talk about, you know, my character and the fact that I love this dark world. And fast forward to Thriller Fest, I came, like I said, and volunteered. And someone asked, hey, we need someone to do some feature articles on certain authors. And I basically like lifted my hand as quick as possible when they asked for David Morrell and I got the assignment. So I, I did an in-depth, you know, interview of five different people who have known him over the years. And I also David, and uh, he asked if he could please, you know, keep that on his website. And it's still on there to this day as under literary high flyer. And of course I agreed, you know, and he said, I really appreciate, you know, the in-depth effort you made for that. He said, and he'd like to do something to pay me back for it. And which of course I had no intention of any payment. And, but he said, I'd like to mentor you. And from there grew a beautiful relationship, you know, where we have breakfast, you know, all the time when we see each other at conferences, he's helped me work through my writing angst. And, and like I said, you know, this, that book is dedicated to him. 
I can't imagine anyone not knowing what Thriller Fest is, but in a beat, describe to our listeners what that is and how it came about. Sure. It's, it's a week-long extravaganza where we celebrate the thriller genre. By that, I mean we're incredibly inclusive. Any subgenre from romantic suspense to science fiction thrillers, everyone is welcome. We have incredible diversity on site. What we like to do is have an educational section where you can learn the craft of writing. We have agents on site, over 60 of them, where you can pitch and you know basically land your dream agent. We also have you know, spotlight guests interviews, like someone like Harlan Coben will come and you'll get to learn about his, his history of his career. And we also have panels and educational sessions. So, and the highlight, of course, is always the cocktail parties every night where people hang out get to talk, network, learn from each other. And then it all ends with this big extravaganza of the banquet where we present the Thriller Awards. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. I, I don't even, I don't remember what it costs, but uh, I remember um, saying to my wife, I'm like, I don't care if, if it had been 10 times the price, it would have been every worth every penny of it because it, there's nothing quite like it. Uh, at least I had never. I mean, you can go to a writing conference and those are cool and I love those. Absolutely. But this was kind of like a writing conference on steroids because of the the accessibility. And uh, I cannot wait for the next one. So do you think that by next year or yeah, by 21, do you think it'll come back to the way we had it before? And, or, and if not, how do you see it being different? Well, I think it's going to be depending on a lot of things, but it'll be very tricky. I think in July right now, the Hyatt where we hold Thriller Fest Mm -hmm. is closed. They've laid off all of their staff. Oh, wow. And so, so we are kind of in flux right now with that, but if for any reason we cannot do a live in person one this year, we will do another phenomenal virtual one Mm -hmm. and dive into a big reboot in 2022. Gotcha. Okay. Fair enough. I have a very special place in my heart for Toronto. I've got some good friends who live up there and and another friend out in Vancouver. I used to do some videography for some clients. I love Toronto. The people are wonderful and uh, the scenery, the architecture. I love everything about it. Now, I know you've also lived, Kimberly, in uh, Africa, Middle East, in Europe, Caribbean. Where do you, where do you suppose is your, uh, the loaded question is, what's your favorite place? Let's put it aside of Toronto, which I, you still live there, correct? Yes, I certainly do. I'm Canadian by birth, but my father worked in telecommunications, so we lived all over the globe. I really enjoyed that experience. Gave me, you know, a real interest in international thrillers, hence my books. And, um, I, you know, I really like warm weather. So if there's one drawback to Toronto, it would be that. Uh, I, I absolutely love the Caribbean. I feel very at home there. I always joke that, you know, at, at birth, I was switched with a Caribbean baby and I'm trying to make my way home. <laughs> Um, but, but I, I mean, I have to say that Africa pretty much captures my heart. I lived in Kenya for three years. I've also spent time in, you know, South Africa, Zimbabwe and Botswana. And there's something about the natural rugged beauty of Africa, the incredible warmth of the people. And sometimes like, it's just the simplicity of the world there where I just feel completely at home. So if I had to say where I love I would definitely say somewhere in Africa. And it and like there's there's I learned how to swim in Mombasa, which was a really great experience. And and I just there's something magical about being over there. And of course, if you love animals, you know, going on safari is is truly a gift. Yeah, I can't even imagine what that's like. For someone who has never seen that, what's the one thing that when you arrive and you see for the first time, 
it literally blows your mind. What would you say? Well, maybe this moment will capture it. So uh, on a, a vacation, I, I went, I wanted to do and see the migration, you know, where the animals, it's unbelievable the thousands and thousands of animals, you know, crossing um, so they can get, you know, the water and the lush greens to, you know, graze on. And going in, we got up at 5 a.m., you know, before it was light out, got in a hot air balloon and flew over the Masa Mera, you know, and enjoyed watching the sun come up, followed by all the animals migrating. And you could like see them very, very clearly because you're not that high up. And then landing and having this unbelievable champagne brunch in surrounded by such raw beauty, like acacia trees and, and just, it, it's, it's hard to explain the vistas, you know, you just, they're spectacular. Sure. Well, uh, by the way, if you, if you're got a mad hankering for warm weather and you're ever out uh, West coast way, I'm in San Diego. So would love to host you at our little abode. We, that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. We, we have found I've lived, I lived in LA three different uh, occasions, once in radio, once in uh, movies and then now uh, in this area to come out and just live. And it's, it doesn't have the Vista of uh, Africa. Um, doesn't have the, it's a different kind of culture than Toronto, but Gosh darn it, the weather is pretty much perfect every day. <laughs> Not to rub it as, in. As I'm looking out at the snow, I deeply appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. As I was reading on some of your background, and I, I noted, I saw this on your website, I've seen it in your book, um, which we're going to get to in a second, Skyjack. And I was thinking, oh, she's, so she's raced camels in Jordan, surfed in Hawaii, and dove with the Great Whites in, in, in uh, South Africa. And I wonder to myself, which was the most exciting and which was the scariest? Wow. I, I mean, I, I really love adrenalized activities. So I, whenever I have the chance, I try my best to engage as long as it's, you know, safe. Sure. I'm not crazy. You know, I, I definitely, but I do really enjoy that moment. So out of the three of them, well, I think the great white um, shark cage diving was probably the scariest just because they stick like the cages aren't like, there's big openings, right? So that you can see, and therefore the shark can actually come and stick its nose in the, in the cage. So you, you, it, it does feel like, like a Jaws movie where it's coming right at you, of course. And you always think, hmm, how many times has it bumped into this cage? And when will that metal fail? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's, that's my thriller mind always saying what could go wrong. Sure. But it was very, very intimidating because there are such powerful animals, aggressive and, you know, their teeth and their mouths. I mean, it's, it, it was very impressive indeed. And I've done other swimming with sharks too, where, you know, less threatening sharks, um, where you don't have to be in a cage. And there's just something about the way your heart races, even though, you know, it's relatively safe, you know, it's just, it's very interesting. I'm trying to picture myself being horrified of uh, sharks and uh, having a, a bit of an aversion to water because I, I almost drowned a couple of summers ago off the coast of Nicaragua. I got caught in an undertow and I, I literally was this close to dying. So ever since then, I have a little bit different uh, appreciation isn't the word for water. But so I think to myself, OK, uh, I like a little bit of that adrenaline junkie as well. But I'm trying to picture myself having that great white coming at me. It's funny. Right before you said that, I'm like, well, how many times is this? have to get hit before it finally just gives in on itself. Um, you know, I'm sorry about your experience. You know, I can 
completely understand, you know, with respect to um, deep respect for the water. I've been caught in a riptide before as well. Um, I, I put myself the university lifeguarding and teaching swimming. No matter how good a swimmer you are, how comfortable you are on the water, it doesn't matter because that is mother nature and it, it is going to always win. Uh, I remember reading Skyjack and I love it. It, it is true. When you read, when you go to a uh... Kim's uh, website, kjhow.com, and you see the credits that roll across the top, they're all absolutely true. You open this book, you start reading, and it literally grabs you by the shirt, and it's relentless. It just takes off, and it doesn't stop for quite some time, and I love that. I instantly ask myself, is Kim a pilot? Are you? Uh, that's really funny, and, I'm, and thank you for that. Um, ironically, you know, I'm not a pilot, but my father is a private pilot. And just to give you an idea of sort of my, my, some of my flying experiences, he would take me up in the plane and there was a aerobatics com competitions. And what they would do is they throw out a roll of toilet paper out the plane window and it would unfurl. And there would be several of these going on at once. And whatever plane made the most cuts in the paper, uh, would win. So in other words, you're, you know, basically going back and forth in quick, tight circles and dramatic upside down turning to try and get as many cuts in that, in that, you know, toilet paper as possible. So I've always loved flying. Um, I've spent a lot of time in small planes in Africa and in, you know, the Bahamas area. Um, I, I would love to have had my pilot's license, but it's tricky because unless you're going to, unless you're independently wealthy and right. can afford a plane, you're not going to be able to use it regularly. And it, it, it's really tricky that way. So it's one of those things where I've always had this huge passion for aviation, but I had the benefit of three brilliant experts. Um, one is an author named William Scott, Bill Scott, and he is a test pilot. So he tests planes before they're basically, you know, get the thumbs up and he's an aviation writer. So I wrote out the, I would talk to him, write out the scenes, send it to him. I also benefited um, from James Hannibal. I don't know if you know his work, mm -mm. but he is uh, a former stealth bomber pilot and very, very talented as well. Um, there, like, I just was so fortunate to basically have, you know, a close relationship with several people that had an incredible background. And my mentor, David Morrell, also is a private pilot. So he, when he read it, he was like, wow, he goes, I'm really impressed you got all the, you know, the facts right. And I also love, you know, digging into the unknown. For example, you know, in Skyjack, you want, you learn basically the fact that if you want to keep people out of the cockpit these days, it's easy to do it. And that's all fine and good if the terrorists are in the cabin. Right. But what if the bad guy is in the cockpit? How do you handle that? And that's something I loved it. Like I really enjoyed exploring. Um, you know, this is an interesting point. When when I saw you at Thriller Fest, um, we were one of my favorite things is, uh, and I'm I'm circling back to Skyjack. One of my favorite things was pitching to the agents because I mean, where else do you get a front row seat to, as you said, sixty plus agents? And I was able to pitch my story, which is the poser. And I remember going in to pitch this particular producer and I did my pitch and he goes, yeah, okay. I mean, it's nice, but not my thing. And I'm like, oh, why is that? He goes, well, you know, seen that, been there, done that, la, la, la. And then an, another comment on the side, something to the effect of, are you a detective? No. Were you a cop? No. Did you work with the police force in any way, shape or form? No. He goes, oh. And I thought to myself, that's interesting um, because 
That's the beauty of being a writer is that you get to pretend that you are in that world while you're doing it. So then I look and of course I'm hanging out with Jack Carr. When you when you talk to Jack, Jack ate it, slept it, drank it. I mean, he lived the Navy SEAL life like nobody else and he lives it to this day. Here's my point. I have a short series of military thrillers and after having met Jack and Brad Thor and Brad Taylor and these guys who Mark Greeny who who eat sleep and drink it. I can't feel like I, I can possibly compete. So there's a part of me that goes, I, I got to throw the towel in on that. But here's the interesting thing. So then I'm, you know, I'm revisiting your book, just kind of going back through it and reliving the story and loving the loving the characters and the speed and so forth. And I'm like, is she a pilot? And da 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 da. And I'm so here's what I'm getting at, especially as it pertains to writers that listen to the show. Do you feel that it's that particularly important to have been such? If the world that you're creating is based upon something that you just have an interest in? Well, it's an excellent question. And, and you can look at it two ways. One is that if you have a background like these gentlemen do, mm -hmm. and it's obviously a huge leg up because you live and breathe it and it's very easy to have accessibility and knowledge. Yeah. You can, you can always feel when you're in the hands of a master as a reader because you just feel the, the authenticity of their language and the way they talk about these items, like let's say, you know, flak jackets, whatever it is, you just know that they, they've used it. They're, they're familiar with every aspect. It's all correct. And I think that if you don't have that background, you have a choice to make. Mm -hmm. You can either go in a different direction with something that maybe doesn't take as much research or something that a world you're comfortable with. I always ask people about their backgrounds because usually each and every one of us has something wonderfully special to mine, you know, whatever it is. And, and I could, you could probably sit down for 15, 20 minutes, talk to someone, ask them a few pointed questions and determine what it is they should probably write about. Mm -hmm. because it was a pivotal moment in their lives. It's a passion of theirs. It's something like, you know, that really resonates with them. The other approach is I'm a former medical writer. So research is really in my genes. I really enjoy learning. And I wanted to write about kidnapping because I was fascinated by it. So I immersed myself in that world and I have built relationships in that world with some of the top negotiators and former hostages and a host of other experts because I was burning to write about it. So if you're willing to invest the time and energy to basically become a subject matter expert in something, then I say go for it too. But maybe there's no halfway point. Like you can often tell when you read someone's books and you just feel like they Googled it quickly and then slammed that fact in versus the authenticity and verisimilitude that comes with real knowledge. That's an excellent point. Um and I'm, I'm thinking of Michael Conley. So my uh, my newest book uh, or the book that came out this summer, The Poser, is about a, a woman detective. And I, I've always been fascinated by detective stories just because there were so many great detective shows coming up when I was a kid and then great stories to read, books to read. But that's an excellent point. And I'm going to circle back real quick to uh, Tony. And Tony, as we were wrapping up our conversation, and I've told this story a couple of times, so I hope my listeners aren't bored with this, but it's, 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 I think it's a point worth proving again in that he said, because herein lies the confidence. He goes, what is your background? I said, well, I was a morning radio guy for like 25 years in New York, LA. He goes, well, why don't you write about that? And I said, who wants to hear that? He goes, I would. And at that moment, I was like, oh, you know, sometimes you're so close to something, you don't, 
who, who wants to read about a radio guy? So that was very informative and eye-opening. It always helps to hear it though from an expert and from an outside source. And, and I agree with Tony. I think it would be an absolutely fascinating backdrop. First of all, you know, we, we're so influenced by media, whether it's TV, radio, and there's a power in that position because you are talking to people, you are influencing their opinions on different things, you're, you're, you're getting them through their day. What you say can make all the difference and, and turn a bad day into a good day. And so I feel like that could be, I mean, the setting for a million different stories. I'd be delighted to brainstorm with you. <laughs> would you? I would love that because... Uh, again, I'm going to use the tired cliche that you're too close to the forest to see the trees. But yeah, uh, Kim, I would I would love that. It's super fun. And I think it's a lot easier, actually, to brainstorm on someone else's book than yours. Mm-hmm. Because as you said, you're just so close to the situation. You yeah. can't have the objectivity. Um, but I feel like also you, you want to do something that's fresh and different. Like before I just, you know, created Thea Paris, I, I said to myself, I studied the market. And I wanted to see what might be missing from the market. And there didn't seem to be a lot of alpha females who are doing exciting jobs. There didn't seem to be a kidnap negotiator on on the private industry who travels the globe to do this. And also there didn't seem to be anyone, a major character that had a chronic illness. And as you know, Thea Paris has diabetes, type Mm -hmm. one diabetes. And so I put all of those factors together to try to do something maybe that would have its own niche. And that's what I think is really critical for people to analyze before they dive in. If, if you're going to do detective, that's wonderful. But what is it about that detective that makes you stand out above all other detectives? And in Michael Connolly's case, I mean, Bosch is a very impressive and unique character. And Michael Connolly knows LA like very few people do. And that comes across in the books as well. So you just have to decide what it is you want to become an expert in and then try your best to make it fresh by bringing a new perspective or angle. That is really, really solid advice. And I'm going to give some props to uh, Paula Meunier. I know you know Paula. Love her. Agent uh, on the East Coast. And I bumped into her, went to a Writer's Digest conference in 18. This is before I met you. And I was pitching uh, the book that is was then called Seduction at Daybreak, and it was a male protagonist. And she pulled me aside. She really loved my pitch. While she liked the story, she didn't think it was terribly unique. But she said to me, and I'm giving her big props, and I really need to get on the horn and, and tell her this because I don't think I ever have, and it's been two years now for crying out loud. She said, David, how about this? How about making it a uh, female protagonist and uh, being a guy writing a woman character? I'm like, well, who would buy that? She goes, well, I would. Same kind of a thing again, right? So I sat down and spent the next year turning the whole thing into, oh, and she goes, oh, by the way, little side note, take that 135,000 words. You might want to cut that down a little bit. A couple, a couple thousand, take them off. So I think it's, I love the fact that, you know, women are writing men, men are writing women. I just feel honestly that follow your heart. There's as, as writers, we're full of imagination. And in Skyjack, for example, you know, I'm Thea Paris, right? You know, an elite kidnap negotiator. I'm a 52-year-old um, uh, mafia guy, Prospero, as well. I'm also a 17-year-old Austrian boy, Johan. So that's what I mean. Like, I don't think there's anything holding you back if, it, if your imagination is there. And sometimes for certain characters, you're going to need to do more homework, 
right? If they're from a certain region or certain culture or certain age, then I really think you need to focus in on that and get it right. So it feels authentic, but you can be anyone. And that's what the best part about being a writer is. Absolutely. That is the best part. That's why we want to do it. And uh, you make it, you make, you, you're making me do this to myself. Really? Duh, duh. I mean, of course that makes so much sense. Right. But it is true. Uh, who better than uh, an avid imaginator than us to create these uh, characters out of nowhere. I was reading an analysis recently by um, Sean uh, called the story grid. And he was breaking down Hannibal Lecter's Silence of the Lambs and by, uh, yeah, by Thomas Harris. And I'm sitting here going, well, Thomas Harris was not a cannibal last I checked. And uh, I don't think he's a serial killer, but boy, and the way he broke down the story. And this is going back to your point about research, because if you do your research properly, and I'm talking about not only research on the serial killer itself, but on, and this is what I'm really starting to get my hands around, and, and you do it so marvelously, is the construct, the construction of a story, making sure that the beats are in the right places and the and the ebb and the flow is in the right place. Because I think of Save the Cat, uh, Blake Snyder, and I think about, you know, there's a reason that a particular story has enormous success because it is following a certain map so to speak and if you don't follow the map and you go no 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 no, i'm just going to be a pantry and i'm just going to like that's my muse myself i'm just going to create it what are your thoughts on that i feel strongly that there is no one way right way to write a novel and that you need to really listen uh to your inner voice and the way you naturally tell a story for example Jeffrey Deaver writes a 101 page outline for a 400 plus page book. That is like a quarter of the book. He is a plotter extraordinaire. Then you take Lee Child who sits at his computer and types out Jack Reacher stories, you know, as he goes. And that's just, he doesn't plan it. He goes, he, he says that, he basically says that this is what's happening in real time to him. And he's basically transferring it into the, you know, onto the page. And so there's such extremes and I feel like you can't fight who you naturally are. I mean, I'm a very logical person in many ways, but as a writer, I'm much more organic or pantser. And I jokingly call myself pants on fire at times because it's sort <laughs> of like I write myself into a corner and then I try and burn my way back out. I just feel strongly that you need to listen to your natural storytelling voice. Now there are pros and cons to each one. Plotters might get bored because it's already on the page and it's like, oh, geez, you know, I just got to type out this chapter. I already know what happens. And it could be a bit laborious that way. Pantsers might write themselves into a corner and, and waste words, you know, basically having to go back, rewrite things. But you can't fight who you are. And I don't think anyone should tell you any way is wrong. I like that. I was uh, uh, talking to someone the other day and I said, I think I must be a planter because I'm a mixture of the two. <laughs> Um, I think that the first three books that I wrote in that military series, I literally, I was doing, oh, it was NaNoWriMo, which most writers know about. And I thought, okay, well, if you've got to crank 1600 words a day, which at that time seemed insurmountable, and you're going to do that for 30 days, then you, you better just get rolling. And after uh, three of those, then I said, um, I think some plotting might be in order i always think like if i'm surprised by where i'm going in the story then my reader will likely be surprised as well uh, and it's it's way more fun to me that's just I, I really think like i said and there's this massive continuum of different types of skills 
just because I like organic writing doesn't mean I'm not always plotting in my head. I'm constantly thinking of the story, where I want to go, how the, this character will fit into it. Uh, I don't think you ever stop thinking. It's just whether you do your thinking on paper or in your mind. How long did it take you to create Skyjack from the moment you started? And I love what you just told me about how many female kidnap negotiators with diabetes. I mean, you basically created this completely unique character with a unique story. So how long ballparkish from the time that you went, hmm, Thea, to end? You know, I, I research continually as I go. So it takes me a bit longer than most. I mean, probably like 18 months because, I mean, you can you can see from Skyjack, for example, how much airplane information is in there and, you know, how that I wanted to make sure that I did my homework and understood everything. Of course, not everything goes in the book, but I really like, um, you know, basically understanding what it is I need to research, going out and researching in putting it into the novel in a scene and then showing an expert and discussing with an expert and then pulling stuff out, putting stuff back in. And so it does take a lot more time because I'm constantly tinkering. I, I'm a huge you know, editor of my own work. Like I just constantly go back and dig in and then I'll put it aside for a while and combat it with somewhat fresh eyes. It's very challenging to have any you know, kind of insights when you're, when you're studying your own work. And I also have some phenomenal beta readers that help me. Well, and, you know, of course, it's it's begging the question, when's the next one, young lady? Uh, well, I just finished it, actually, um, and it's a brand new character. I just wanted to try something completely different again. And once again, I, I hope that it's a fresh situation. Have you ever heard of a hostile environment consultant? Hostile environment consultant. No. Okay. So I happen to know a couple. <laughs> of course and, uh, you do. I like I like learning from these, you know, fascinating people. So what they do basically is they travel with different people into really dangerous places and they protect them. They do reconnaissance before they go. They plan the trips. And who do they take? They can take journalists. So people will travel with, you know, uh, CNN, Fox, wherever, you know, just to these wild, dangerous war zones or these challenging places. You can also take, um, you know, rock stars or, you know, kind of people who may want to do concerts in Iraq or Iran. You can also do political figures, people that, you know, want to travel, businessmen, oil, oil billionaires uh, and ambassadors. So there's this host of a huge number of people that have to travel for business or for, you know, pleasure, whatever it is they're doing in dangerous parts of the world. And there are people called high-risk advisors, hostile environment consultants who work with them and take and travel them with them. And so I've gotten to be really good friends with one. And this, you know, story is, is kind of like based on that type of job and what this person has to do. And the story is set in Syria and Jordan. And basically the character is taking a team of journalists for a very important interview in the, in a cave in the middle of the desert when the whole team including him are kidnapped and so what what are they going to do how are they going to get out and the story goes from there that's amazing and and where did you you weren't just walking along one day and going hmm hostile how did that pop up into your psyche and, and how long did it take before you chewed on you went oh you know what that 
is worth the next year, two years of my life to create a story? Well, I was looking, you know, I mean, I sort of look at my brand as kidnapping, right? I mean, that's just sort of the thing I'm fascinated by. I, I see it as a purgatory of sorts where you're alive, but you're not really living and you're stuck in this bubble of where the time stops and the world keeps going on, but you're not going anywhere. It just it fascinates me because in so many ways, it's somewhat worse than, than maybe like crime fiction when someone dies and you, you, you find that, you know, who murdered them that, but kidnapping is like, you're hovering in this absolute horrible place. And you don't know if today is going to be the day you're released or the day that you die. And so I found that very fascinating. So I've been like basically meeting tons and tons of people in that world. And I've met them many different ways. I've gone to conferences where I've met kidnap negotiators. I've also um, reached out to people online. And how I met this person was through LinkedIn. I saw his background and I was like, that's really interesting. And I just wrote him, a complete stranger, and said, hey, you know, I'd love to talk to you about this. And he was game. And now we're friends. So it's just crazy how things can happen. And I believe that like meeting new people who do things that you don't know anything about is a great way to enrich your life. And when will the book come out? Probably later in 2021. Um, It's called Perfect Hostage. And uh, I'm delighted to keep you posted as as it goes. Excellent. Um, It's just everything in publishing right now is sort of in flux, as you I'm sure you know, with COVID, there's been a lot of things moving around time wise, right? It's just, it's hard, you know, to do book events, you know, until things obviously clear up. Yeah, that's a great question. How are book appearances and, you know, uh, bookstore appearances and, and, the, and that whole thing going? Well, I mean, I think in, there's pros and cons once again. The pro is, is that, you know, you can do a ton of them and never leave your house, mm-hmm. which is quite nice because when I did the tour for Skyjack and Freedom Broker, I was traveling to 13 or 14 different cities in two weeks, you know, so every day I got on the plane and went somewhere and that's really tiring. And it's also like you can imagine in today's world, it would be very a huge challenge and, yeah. and not safe. The bookstores are still having virtual events, but I do sense that people are having virtual event fatigue. Mm-hmm. They, at first it was like, oh, this is so fantastic. Let's do it. Let's do it. But there is something very special, as you know, from Thriller Fest Mm -hmm. about meeting people face to face in the real world, literally sitting across from each other, you know, enjoying a cocktail and having a great conversation. And as nice as virtual is, and I'm so grateful that we have these capabilities, it just doesn't replicate that Mm -hmm. feeling of meeting that person and spending time with them. So it's a challenge because also every single author out there is doing virtual events. How many people are going to just sit like at home on their computer and watch virtual event after virtual event. I just don't see that happening. So I think that we're coping for now. And I would predict there's going to be a wonderful blend of virtual and real life events in the future. Mm -hmm. There, there was someone saying on the news the other day about how there's a bit of a zoom burnout. And when you and I were talking about, is this going to be video or audio? I said, I like to have it both because eventually, because I get to sit down and, see you uh, and i haven't seen you for two years now almost i liked uh, the audio because it's so familiar to me and and podcasts are so great because you can do anything in the world and not have to watch anything so i I usually walk my dog and listen to podcasts uh, but video it's nice to have as well and so i often wonder about what's next but i want to jump ahead to something else and i'm I'm gonna ask is because i am a self-published guy 
What is the best way to get discovered these days? And, and, and I'm going to back up one sentence. You know, you can walk into a Barnes & Noble still, and you can get a little overwhelmed when you look at shelf and shelf and shelf and shelf and shelf of writers, and everybody's competing in this world. How do we get discovered? Well, you're right, because there's a million books published a year, and every month the publishers are pumping out a group of books as well as all the self-published books are coming out but take heart in a way because it's never been better for indie publishers people who you know want to do indie publishing the best way you can get discovered is if you have um, the ability to invest in your future career as an author i'd really recommend that new authors do online publicity that's where you're going to get the best bang for the buck. It's also something where you can track how you do. Let's say you take out, you know, an ad somewhere, um, I don't know, Facebook ad, let's say, and target it. Then you can watch and see if there's any uptick in sales. And by only doing one effort at a time, you could analyze and keep track of your sales and decide where you want to put your marketing dollars. Uh, at the same time, it is really tricky because when you think about going even online to buy books, which most people buy their books online now. And you think of that little thumbnail. Well, there, it's incredibly important to have a very good cover. And I would say, you know, like uh, the one thing I like, if you see behind me there, Skyjack, right? Yep. My name and the, and the title are very clear and easy to read. Picture that slightly smaller on the screen. You mm -hmm. can still read it. You know, some of those books where you can barely read the title, even if it's huge, mm -hmm. I think they're at a great disadvantage because the first thing that attracts us about, you know, all that old adage, don't judge a book by its cover. We all still do. <laughs> we can't help it. It's in our nature. And so I would say get the best, you know, I think a bright cover, you know, something that, like I said, has very clear, easy to read font and something as well, the, the message or the blurb about your book has to be extremely well written. I work really closely with a gentleman named Peter Hildick Smith, who is part of the Codex group. And Peter is a book messaging expert. And he studies covers and does analysis of what's going to attract more readers. And it could be worth doing a session with him and putting your, um, you know, kind of cover ideas to the test, maybe take the top four and putting them out there on a focus group and seeing which one really grabs. But the best way to spend your marketing dollars, I think for a newer author is online. And, and Peter has proven that. This is not just a gut feel, this is a proven study you know, out there because there's only about 650 brand name authors. And of course they're an immediate buy for most people because they already know they're gonna deliver a fantastic product and sure. a proven, you know. But when you're new, you also have to just be patient. I think publishing is very much a long game and people like Lee Child and Michael Connolly took eight to 11 books before they really broke out. And it's very rare to be an overnight success in this business. So keep your head down, write the very, very best book possible, because that's what really brings the next, the readers back for the next novel. And then also, you know, think about your career in a strategic manner and pick a brand or something that makes you stand out from the crowd, like we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. How do you distinguish yourself from all those people out there? And then specialize and really focus on that. But it really is about the book. 
because word of mouth is the most powerful thing there is. And if someone reads a book they absolutely love, they're going to tell all their friends about it. Pete, his last name again is? Peter Hildick Smith. I can send you his link. Okay, great. You have such a peaceful way about you. I, it's one of the things I remember when I first met you. I was like, you know, when you're thrown into a situation you haven't been before, it can make you a little unnerved. And you have this beautiful way of making everybody around you feel so comfortable. And thank you for that. Thanks for the kind words. Yeah, it's just, it's it's really wonderful. I, I know we have a, a few more minutes, but there's a couple things I wanted to ask you. One of them is, and this has just recently hit the news, and since you're so ingrained in the business, I'm, I'm sure you have thoughts on it. We have the big five back to publishing, and now they're toying with the idea of almost becoming four. Is it Simon and Schuster and uh, Bertelsmann who's going to buy Simon and Schuster? Is it like 2.2 billion? Is that that has gone through? Yes. I don't think it's gone through yet, but it, I think they have to wait for some permissions, but. Penguin Random House will become this monster publisher. Now, the good news is this. They're still operating under separate imprints, right? So, you know, if you're still going to be like a Simon & Schuster author, you're still going to be a Simon & Schuster author, but you will be under that big umbrella. But we have seen, it used to be like seven publishers. Now it just keeps getting smaller and smaller. And it's really tricky because you really do need to have variety, first of all, for competition reasons, second of all, for options, because if someone's just not a good publisher fit for you, you need to be able to go somewhere else. But that's why I think, like I said, these different models that are coming up, there's Blackstone, which is audio. They're getting into the, you know, sort of um, print business now, ebook and print. So they're really growing as, as, and they're trying to acquire a lot of authors. And, you know, of course, Thomas and Mercer has really grown and become quite a powerful force, acquiring Patricia Cornwell and Dean Kuntz. And so I, I think in indie publishing, I mean, there's people out there who are making a very, very solid living because they're talented marketers and good writers. And somehow they're able to find a way to market to a certain group. And the most interesting thing I remember hearing is that, you know, to be a bestseller, you only really have to have like 100,000 loyal fans. And I know that sounds like a lot in some ways, but it's not in others. I mean, you know, if you can, through word of mouth over the years, develop, you know, a, a committed and loyal audience, that is what's going to take you where you need to go. For example, when Lee Child first came out, you know, Peter Hildick Smith did some studies on, on him and his work. And they found out that all the Reacher readers were incredibly loyal. You know, there weren't as many back then, but there mm-hmm. were so loyal fans. And basically, you know, Random House wanted to run with, with that because of the fact that they knew that once a fan, always a fan with him, that they were very, very loyal and consistent readers. And so that's what makes someone a superstar is to have that brand loyalty, right? That, you know, when you go to the store, what are you going to pick up that book? Uh, that's a really good point. And it makes me want, I, I want to be real careful because I have one, two, three, four, s- seven lead child books on my bookshelf next to me. I'm a big fan of his. He has this certain magic. Is the magic his name? Is the mag? you know, the fact that you have a character that's always moving around and he only has a toothbrush and he buys his and trades in his shows, his sh- uh, clothes at a you know, a goodwill. I mean, what is that magic? What is that? Is it? And do you think the magic is just the fact that loyalty? I don't know if I completely well, massacred that question. 
Well, I, I, th- I think I got it. Well, no, <laughs> uh, but don't worry. Um, I think there's a few things. First, Lee's books have often been called modern day Westerns. A stranger comes into town, deals with the bad guys and leaves town. And I think inside all of us is a desire for vigilante justice. We feel frustrated on a daily basis by bad things that happen that we're, we really have no control over. So to, to be able to grasp that control and to take you know, charge and to inflict pain like Reacher does, I think would be incredibly satisfying. <laughs> and, and I think that's where we get the magic is that it's like, you know, and also I think that we, we also dream, I, I'm sure most people are very sensitive about what others think of them and how they're received. And I think it's just a natural human, you know, foible is to worry about that. And Reacher just doesn't seem to suffer from that either, which I think is brilliant because he just goes in and takes charge and decides what, what is right and sorts things out. So I feel there's a really complicated and, and Lee, you know, obviously is an incredibly bright man. Oh yeah. You know, I think he could write anything well, but I think the Reacher is is maybe just in some ways the right character for the right time. Does that make sense? Yeah. We're, you know? And sometimes the beauty is in the simplicity. Well, I'm going to leave it at that. The beauty is in the simplicity. And also sometimes, you know, um, when people today, like James Patterson is a good example of mm. this. He's made writing and reading, sort of reading very, very accessible to everyone because he specifically targets, um, you know, very clear words, you know, short chapters, quick reads. And so in other words, anyone that's got a busy life that really still wants to read can pick it up, read a chapter two, put it down, pick it up, read a chapter and two, put it down. So that has changed and revolutionized the market, what James Patterson has done. Because instead of getting involved in a very complex story, you know, with different multiple viewpoints and things like that, this is a little bit just more like, I want a quick fix of a story. You know, it's funny. I, um, I was trying to think when I, when I really started dabbling, giving myself permission to change from one career to the next and writing was going to be it. I was drawn to James Patterson because of that exact reason. I was doing a lot of flying back and forth coast. And I'm like, I want something I can pick up and it will take me that five hour flight and I can probably finish it. If I'm not going to finish it as I land, I'll finish it as I land the other way. And I found myself flying through, no pun intended, his books. And there is something about that. You're, you're right. It's like you just want to, okay, I'm just going to blow through a couple of chapters and oh God, yeah. just a couple of more. Yeah. I think it's a very, very good approach for today's complicated world is to have this quick, easy, digestible book that you can devour. Oh, what a nice title. I put it in on purpose. Uh, Thank you. You know, and speaking of that exact same thing, I've noticed that the numbers keep dropping. And just about the time, like I think Devour, using Devour as an example, uh, came out at about 93,000 words. And uh, I got a couple of reviews going, God, you know, it's a good book, but it's so long. And I'm like, so long? 93,000 words seems so short. I mean, um. And do you see that as a trend and do you think it'll continue that trend or do you just think that's, you know, we're busy and we just don't have the time for it and maybe all the time to get into all that specificity, like you just said? Well, I mean, thrillers are basically 80 to 100,000 words on average. All all three of my books here are 92-ish. Like that's just felt like the right length. I didn't plan it. It just worked out that way. Uh, I think, you know, if you're going to write a Clancy style book, it's going to be a lot thicker. I, I feel that 
paper costs are part of the reason that, you know, we're trimming down books a bit because it's so expensive to, you know, print them that if you can do it in fewer words, it's great. Also, life is very busy and people want that kind of compact experience. But I, I really feel like to get a meaty thriller, you really do need that 80 to 100,000 for the arcs and for all the characters to be able to be explained and, and to make it understandable. Um, novellas don't sell very well, interesting. So, you know, comparatively to novels. So I think people do gravitate to a bigger story, um, but maybe the person, you know, if it was just from one reader saying that, you know, everyone has their opinion, right? Sure. You know, that's interesting. Uh, speaking of James Patterson, he came out with that idea called Book Shots. And I always thought that was a really novel idea, but it kind of disappeared, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen, but I mean, it's possible there's tons out there. I mean, James Patterson puts out like a lot of books every year. I mean, countless. Kim, do you find yourself thinking that you want to do uh, these long form, 80, 90, 100,000? And then do you ever think either as a, a pen name or other that you'd go a different way. Like for instance, I don't know why I'm, this just hit me. Like I would think you would have an interesting take on a romance novel, for instance. Do you ever have a desire to do a different flavor? Well, I, I actually started like taking, you know, writing classes with romance because it just happened to be the one that was at my local library. Yeah. Um, but when dead people started, you know, popping up in these books, I didn't think it was that romantic. <laughs> <laughs> but but seriously though but I, I definitely could see myself writing in another genre I love story I think each and every genre offers some incredibly interesting things I, I would say historical books would be fabulous um, women's fiction you know uh, romance for sure I, when you think about the enormous success of someone like Nicholas Sparks you know with the notebook and other novels I mean that is brilliant because they make great movies they're heartwarming I, I don't know I think that there I would definitely consider writing it you know another genre and other books it's really just a matter of time for me because I really do a lot of research yeah so it's, it's it would be a very different experience to write a book where there was no research versus the amount of research I did you know, it would take a lot less time. If you're a, a reader of, I'm going to pull a name out of here. Um, Don Winslow, here's a great one. I've got everything that Don Winslow has written. If you're a Don Winslow fan and Don Winslow one day decides, I'm going to, which I asked him this one day, hey, how about romance? And he went, I won't tell you what he said exactly, but basically it was no. First of all, I'm trying to imagine Don Winslow writing romance. But do you, to this point, if you went and did romance, we'll use that as a, an idea. Would you keep? Would you write under the KJ How, or would you? No, no. I would definitely switch um, to a different name. Readers have expectations when they see a brand name. You know, in the sense that, like, okay, that writer is going to deliver this type of story to me, and they want the same but different, right? So in other words, I can go and do anything that's in the thriller realm, that's exciting, probably maybe has a kidnapping in the book and they're gonna feel like, okay, that's fine. But if I start, if I wrote like a classic romance or like a Nicholas Sparks type book and wrote it there and people bought it and didn't like that genre, they would be angry with me. Uh -huh. So I, you also, um, you know, you can see from what the backdrop that, you know, it's a dark kind of moody feel. Might go to my website. It's it's definitely kind of has that moody feel too. If you are writing romance, you should have a separate website and a separate name with a lot more upbeat color and mm -hmm. a little softer feel. So really, I, I studied marketing like, and I, and I find that stuff fascinating and, and basically branding. And you want to brand yourself in the correct genre. So 
there are certain people who can get away with anything, but they're very successful people. Us mere mortals kind of have to, you know, separate ourselves. Well, I think of Nora Roberts writing as J.D. Robb. I mean, there's a great example of two different things. And I I guess she, does she have two different websites? But that's a really good point that you're making. Yeah, but- you just, you just, you're going to attract a different audience. You're going to, uh, you're going to want to appeal to a different readership. You're also going to want to do social media differently, right? There's like, I talk all the time in my social media about travel and intrigue and different things like that. Um, you, you create this, like, you know, like I said, it's like a, dive into your books and and who you are as a writer and if you wrote romance i think you'd really want a different aspect what is your ultimate dream as an author what what's the next like if you can just go and make that magic happen what is it well i mean i obviously i think a lot of people want their books into films and into tv shows these days there's a real demand for content and i would love to see someone like thea paris you know be featured in either like a really cool mini series like like you know the night manager i don't mm-hmm. know if you watched it but loved it which, right fantastic i would love to like something like that or you know movie because i really feel that young girls need a strong female role model to look up to and there aren't a lot of strong alpha females out there i mean there's wonder woman but she's a you know a comic book character right like you know what I mean? Like a superhero. It's a very different, like, it's not as realistic, right. As a character who's like someone in a gritty role of a kidnapped negotiator. So I'd love to see that happen. And also I'd really, you know, I just would love to kind of be known as the kidnapped girl, you know, the, the writer who writes kidnapping stories and, yeah. and you feel like you learn something when you pick up my book and you're entertained and that there's this association because if you think about all the, you know, the, the, like Stephen King, I mean, he's just known for horror, right? Dan Brown, known for historical, religious, you know, mystical stuff that, that is out there. And so for me, I would love to be known as the kidnapped kid. I like that. I think of uh, Patricia Cornwell. You always know that you're going to be dealing with a corner, right? There's going to be a dead body. And uh, yeah, back to your kidnapping thing. I don't know, has anybody really cracked that before you? And which, what's your competition today? Well, I mean, there's there's so many different stories about kidnapping in different series, right? Like kidnappings happen, okay, in different, many, many, many different crime fiction books. But it's very rare that this perspective is, you know what I mean? And I really don't know of anyone else writing this type because most people have never heard of this job, this private industry kidnap negotiator. It's mm-hmm. very... It's kind of a shadowy world and I was extremely lucky to get insight into it um, by meeting the right people and having them accept me and talk to me. I'm sure people could do it really well. It's just, it's just having that access and having, and I've spent, you know, six to seven years of my life now immersed in that world. It's a big investment, right? So wherever, like I said to you earlier, if you're going to specialize in something, make sure you're really passionate about it because you want to have the legs to go the distance. And that's what I'm hoping for. And even in this new series with um, my character in The Perfect Hostage, the hostile environment consultant, it's in the same world. They're there to protect against, you know, kidnapping and killing um, of people traveling in very dangerous places. So that's kind of like you know, my passion. Well, you're set up for the perfect alliteration, Kim the Kidnap Kid. <laughs> hey, what can I say? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right. So last piece of advice, you're, you're an up and coming author. You're a self-published person. You're, I'm, I'm just pulling this out of the air. Like, you know, I can't think of anyone right off the top of their head. And, um, and, and you 
best piece of advice you would give them walking away as they are embarking on either embarking on a brand new career they there's something they've always dreamed of or they're finally going to say you know what uh, I'm, I'm going to go the distance and and use the long-term goal planning like you're talking about and really look at it as a long play what's that closing piece of advice well i think you have to embrace criticism from constructive um, and credible sources so I have spent so much time learning how to write. I was a medical writer. I went back to my master's in creative writing. And then I've taken retreat after retreat after retreat of writing. Instead of going on vacations, I did writing retreats. And I've taken local uh, courses at my university that's nearby. I've taken so many different things and and craft classes at Thriller Fest. I, I think you need to become a lifelong student And the best thing you can do for your career is to learn how to become a better craftsperson and a better storyteller. And they're different. And read tons because that's how you become a better storyteller through osmosis, learning what works, what doesn't. Take books, mark them up with post-it notes, scratch all over them and really, really dissect those books. And then when you have the opportunity to be critiqued by someone who you know you can trust and is esteemed take their advice seriously a lot of writers young writers i see are very defensive about their work and very like you know oh wait this is this is these are my words i'm protective of them and i think the best thing i ever did was just basically be like have the skin of a rhino and say tell me what's wrong how do i improve thank you so much for spending all this time with us it's and it's so good to see you again I know it feels like way too long, but we'll be back to, you know, in a, as a group and celebrate celebrating in New York before too long. I hope, I mean, it's crazy times. It's unpredictable. It, it's, you couldn't write this in a thriller and have it be believable. <laughs> K J And of course, uh, thriller fest is, is it I T W? You can go, just go to thrillerfest.com. Okay. Yeah, got it. This is awesome, Kim. Thank you so much. Anyways, it's such a pleasure to talk to you and hang out and uh, keep me posted on your news. I will. And, you know, thanks for your support. It really means a lot. Thank you, Take care, David. Bye-bye. I know. Was I right? Isn't KJ Howe wonderful? If you ever get a chance to see her, say at a future Thriller Fest, and who knows, maybe they will be live again someday, or perhaps at another conference, or even snorkeling off the coast of some deliciously tropical island somewhere, you'll instantly see what a terrific person she is. And you, like all of us who know her, will come to love her giving spirit. Okay, you're probably wondering who is on next week's show, right? And truthfully, I don't know just yet. I have several lines in the water trying to hook any one of several talented and very busy thriller writers, but hey, they're working on their craft just like I should be. (laughs) So with that, I'll ring off, but not before asking you two questions. Number one, Did you enjoy the show? And if you did, would you please consider sharing it with your social tribe? Thank you. Secondly, would you like to be on our show? If so, just drop a line to davidtempleauthor at gmail.com. And yes, my team is working to set up email and such to one central place. And in that email, do me a favor, share the book you'd like to talk about, perhaps a bio and or website, and I slash we get back to you as soon as humanly possible. Okay, I've chapters to write and shows to edit. So, speaking for the Thriller Zone, I'm David Temple. I'll see you next time.
The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.